Be seated. I want to take a moment and lead us in prayer as we come before our holy God to worship him. I want to pray this morning that that God would awaken our hearts to the power of the gospel in a new and fresh way, both us, for other churches and Christians around the area, pray specifically this morning for a couple of our uh, sister churches in North Portland, Red Sea Church and University Park Baptist Church. And then finally, that, that God would just make the gospel powerful through his people in our community. So would you pray with me? And we've just sung a song about um, being in awe of, of you as, as holy, the fact that, that you speak and darkness flees. You just merely whisper and it flees. As so many of us reflected before the service started when we were praying for the service, it's, it's good sometimes just to come into your presence and be silent. To just turn off all of the thoughts and the emotions and the volume around us and sense your holiness. It's good for our souls. I pray, God, that you would, you would help us to be so centered, so accurate in our thinking and our feeling and our responding even right now. And yet, it doesn't stop there. Your word tells us that, that your holiness and our sinfulness, in light of your holiness, how far short we fall of your holiness, that that, that is only the beginning of the story. And though it creates a great gulf between you and us, a gulf that we cannot ourselves um, bridge, a chasm we cannot cross, that you, the holy God, has condescended to become man, to rescue us at immeasurable cost to yourself from the eternal destruction that our own sinful choices have merited for us. And that is to your glory. And so, holy God, you are also merciful God. And the fact that you are either one stretches the imagination. The fact that you are both boggles the mind. God, the gospel is amazing. The good news that you have come at great cost to yourself, Jesus, to die in our place, rise from the dead, and rescue us from our sin, reuniting us with our holy God. I pray today that you would awaken us, the members of this church, in a new and fresh way to the beauty and the power and the awesomeness of the gospel, of your holiness and of your mercy and your goodness. I, I pray, Father God, that, that the power of the gospel, the compelling beauty of the gospel would so capture my heart this morning, would so capture the hearts of every man and every woman who is with us this morning, either on our live stream or in person that it would begin to affect how we feel, that it would begin to shape how we respond, that it would begin to define our experience more fully as people in the midst of a world that feels oftentimes increasingly chaotic, negative, and pessimistic. Oh, Jesus, I pray that the gospel would be huge in the hearts and the minds of those of us who already know it. 
and believe it. God, we pray that for our own church. We pray that too for Christians and, and other churches all over Hillsboro and the Portland area, many of whom we know and, and are in personal relationship with. We know them, we love them. I think this morning of Pastor Chad, a good friend at University Park Baptist Church in North Portland, and uh, our brothers uh, at Red Sea Church also in North Portland, Josh and those with them. God, I pray that, that even as their congregations gather, I actually believe right now at the very same time we are, God, would you enlighten their hearts, would you enliven their hearts to the truth of the gospel, your love for them and your salvation, in a way that would change them as well, to their good and to the blessing of the community in North Portland. I pray especially for Josh at Red Sea Church as they've been able to bring on another uh, pastor to pastor along with him for the first time in many years. I'm grateful just talking to him this week that he's got that help. I pray that their relationship would be excellent, that you would bless that congregation with the additional leadership and that you would ignite the hearts of brothers and sisters in Christ to live the beauty of the gospel in St. John's and around North Portland. Pray too for Chad who continues to pastor a smaller church alone. We pray that you would encourage his heart and the hearts of so many of his members, many of whom cannot gather physically, and so they're trying to tune in through live streams. God, I pray that, that these separations would not harm these churches, but that they would strengthen them and that the beauty of the gospel would give the members of each one of those churches the courage and the heart and the love to reach out to one another, to continue to faithfully serve you. And we pray that hundreds of our fellow Portlanders would come to saving faith in Christ in North Portland because of the ministry of these churches. God bless them this morning. Encourage them. And last but not least, Father, we pray for our own community. We pray for Hillsborough. We pray for the surrounding area, Beaverton and, and Banks and Cornelius and so many communities in which we live. Members of our church living and working in, in long-established neighborhoods, living and moving into brand new neighborhoods. Father God, new neighborhoods literally going up as we speak right here around our church property and new neighbors being welcomed into our community. Jesus, we don't know where all of them are at. You do. But we know that all of us as people desperately need to know your love for us in an experiential and powerful way. I pray, God, that you would make that evident to everybody who has gathered here this morning, everybody tuning into this live stream, I pray that we would come to see and understand your holiness and your incredible mercy and love in a new and more compelling way than we've understood it up till now. We pray that those truths that are known by some of us, not known by others, would become not only known and believed, but would become powerful, reality-shaping truths. Jesus, we pray that you would lead men and women to yourself, to repentance. We pray that you would make the gospel not only clear, but that you would make it compelling, because there is nothing more compelling than the, the depths that you have sunk to, the, the distances you have gone to redeem us. So God, glorify your name, I pray, as you save eternally hundreds of souls in our community, in our neighborhood for the rest of this year. God, this has been such a crazy year. So many sarcastic jokes about 2020 and how eager so many of us are to see this year go away. But God, I pray that for many, this would be the year where their eyes were truly opened to the beauty of the gospel and where life began, where you brought, as you so often do, great life out of the wreckage of heartache. So Jesus, as we give ourselves to you now, we pray that you would glorify yourself, make the gospel clear, lead us to repentance, that we might find joy and you might receive the glory you're due. We ask this as your people, in your name, for our good and for your glory. Amen.
Thank you for praying with me. It's good to pray together, even if one person is leading us for us to all gather around and give our amen, as it were, our agreement to the prayers. To pray together as a church family uh, is essential. Living life together as a church family is essential. That's why God has brought us together as a family. So I just want to echo what Jordan said earlier. If you're over in the multipurpose room, we're so glad you're here. If you're here in this room, we're so glad you're here. If you're watching the live stream, so glad you've tuned in. Um, yeah, special shout out to those of you watching the live stream in small groups. I know many of you are doing that. So even though you're not here on campus, you're making it a group experience. So proud of you. So grateful for you. And I hope and pray that you'll be blessed this morning. We're in the second part of a four-part series of lessons from the Bible's most probably famous book, its very last book, the book of Revelation. We started last week noting that there are some key lessons this book was, has been seeking to teach Christians at all times. It was written in the first century. It definitely had some lessons for those people who were alive back then. It had some things to say to Christians who were alive in the first century. Truthfully, it has a lot to say to Christians who are alive in the 21st century as well. The first lesson that we saw last week was that life is war. Life is war. The Bible is clear about that. It's unapologetic about that, and it helps frame the expectations of God's followers that things won't always be easy, so we don't find it a real shock when things seem to even be going from bad to worse. We're ready for it. We need that lesson, but that's not the only lesson we need. We're going to continue to see other lessons, uh, progressively more hopeful lessons, including this morning's lesson, the victory of Christ. That's an important lesson for Christians to keep in mind, especially when things are hard, because when things are hard, we seek a Savior. It's human nature. It's just human nature. As Christians, we would say God designed us that way. We see that even in the Scripture, but we also see it play out in human experience. Continue our World War II theme from last Sunday, if you were with us then. One of the questions that um, historians, 20th century historians, have, have kicked around um, exhaustively is in the World War II era, and the question is simply this, how could Hitler happen? How could Hitler happen? How could a, a man who turned out to be as, as crazy and sadistic and, and as much of a monster as he was with the policies that, that he actively pursued, how could he sway an entire nation of people? Not only a nation, but probably the most educationally advanced, scientifically enlightened, and uh, a nation that was committed to the arts and to history. The German nation of the early 20th century was among the best educated in the world. How could such a group of people be so taken in by such a monster? It's a huge quandary. It's a huge puzzle, I think, if you don't understand human nature. If you believe that education is the path to salvation, then the best educated people should be the most enlightened and the least likely to bend toward evil. But history shows that's not the case. And historians have largely uncovered, I think, pretty satisfactory answers to that. Answers that make us maybe a little bit less judgmental of how a German nation could be taken in by such a dictator. After World War I, the Treaty of Versailles was, was famously harsh on the German Republic. Uh, the Allied powers that had won World War, World War I were determined to make the Germans pay in every possible way for having... Uh, been in that conflict, and pay they did 
Uh, Their economy was in shambles. Their nation was falling apart. To be a German in the 1920s was to face extreme poverty, deep personal and national humiliation, and maybe, maybe most deadly of all, it was to have no hope. No hope for a better future. Forces outside yourself had imposed themselves on your world and your life was in chaos as a result. And when that goes on long enough, when pain goes on long enough, when hopelessness sets in deep enough, it triggers the savior instinct in all of us. Does it not? We long for the strong man who will come and who will rescue us from this plight. We look, who has the answers? Something has got to change. And we often know that the person who greets us in the mirror in the morning is not the person that's going to fix it all. We know we don't personally have the power to just right every wrong in our world or in our own lives. And so we yearn for somebody who can pull us together and give us some hope that things are going to get better The fact that we think that way is not accidental, nor is it necessarily bad. Actually, from the perspective of the Bible, the fact that we long for a strong man to deliver us when we know circumstances are beyond our control is part of reality. It's part of how God has baked reality, as it were, into our very nature. We are made to long for a savior, to use the Bible's term. We are made to long for a savior. Of course, the trouble is, there are counterfeit saviors. Thank God there's a real one, but there are counterfeits. And through a series of of, of actions and speeches and and different things that have been thoroughly well documented by historians, uh, Hitler in particular was able to rise to power with his newly minted Nazi party, largely on the back of seeing the chaos of the world that so many Germans were experiencing and saying, if you come together, I can give us a better, more hopeful future. And everything within people said, yes, because we need hope. We need hope. As we look at this second of four lessons from the book of Revelation, last week, life is war. This week, the lesson is that Christ, though, has won. Christ has won, and that matters because if we anchor ourselves in the victory of Christ, we have the Savior God intends us to have. I hope that by God's grace through these three weeks together, that that we as a church will, will have a little bit of steel put in our spines, so to speak, to be able to walk the long, hard road that God has before us. I'm not sure more than anybody else what that's going to look like in the near or distant future. But we know it's probably going to be tough in many ways. Oh, that God would give us a a scripture-soaked mindset as his people to reflect him accurately. Life is war, but Christ has won. What does that mean for us? What we're going to see this morning is that means that as Christians, we must anchor ourselves in Jesus' worthiness and his victory until it actually starts to shape our experience. I think that's the message this chapter has for us. We must anchor ourselves in Jesus' worthiness and victory until it begins to shape our experience. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn them to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. 
I want to read this chapter, and then we'll walk through it and see the lessons that God has for us. Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard all around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands on thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders bowed down and worshipped. This is God's word for us today. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous beauty of the gospel in your word. For our good and your glory, we ask it. Amen. Fun, fun chapter. We talked a little bit about Revelation last week, which we studied as a church uh, two and a half, three years ago. Some of you were here for that study. So just by a quick way of reminder, uh, this again is a book that is full of imagery, um, It it communicates primarily through images. So here in chapter 5, the Apostle John, who's the original author of this book, is seeing a vision from God, and so he's recording what he is seeing, what he's experiencing. This vision is a little interesting because he's actually an active participant in the vision. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 go together. Chapter 4 sort of sets the stage and describes some of the characters who we just referred to there. Uh, We won't take the time this morning to go through all of it. But chapter 4 sets the stage, and then chapter 5 enacts the drama, as it were. A scene plays out on the stage. And the stage, basically, is is heaven. That's what the imagery is designed to convey. 
Uh, It's centered on a throne where a king is sitting. That's clearly God the Father, the ruler of the universe. And all of the other imagery in it, there's this tumultuous sea in between John and the throne that he is seeing. It's flashing with all the sparkling light and dazzling. He can't get across it. There are these concentric rings in chapter 4 of angelic beings that are surrounding the throne in ever greater circles, these four living creatures, and then these 24 elders they referred to, and and seven torches, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. And We're not going to go into all those details this morning. Here's the point, though. The point is when you step back, you see this image of there's God on his throne, and We're seeing this from from John's perspective, the human witness of this vision, and there's all of these layers of impassable barrier between God and John. In other words, God is holy. He is unapproachable. You can't get to him, and that's because of our sin. He's holy, and we are sinful people. Now, here comes the problem that that chapter 5 starts with. That's that's the stage that's set in chapter 4. Now, chapter 5 begins by saying, uh, Almighty God is on his throne and he's holding a scroll that is sealed up with seven seals. What what the Bible's getting at here is is to describe what's wrong with the world. Why is the world broken? Now, there's a small, simple conversational question to ask, right? (laughs) Your next uh, little holiday party. Next break time over the water cooler. Hey, so what's wrong with the world? (laughs) There's a light conversation starter. The Bible here is addressing what is wrong with the world? Why is the world broken? And in the image of Revelation 5, in the imagery of Revelation 5, the answer is because God has a scroll and the scroll is sealed up. Here's what that imagery would have meant to a first century person. This is this is picturing a king, you know, issuing his edicts, right? He's, he's passing laws, and they would get written down and sealed up in a scroll, and then you bring them out, and then the scroll would be broken, and the law would be read, and that's now the law of the land. And so, or sort of like a, a last will and testament almost. It's all sealed up until the person dies, and then the seals are broken, and you read the will, and then the instructions in the will are carried out. So, so the idea here is that, that God is reigning He's on the throne. He's he's righteous. He's the one who will make the world work the way it was meant to work. And the problem is it isn't working the way it was meant to work. And why is that? Because God's will is sealed up. That is, the way God wants the world to work is not what's actually making the world work today. We need to get that, that scroll open. God's righteousness needs to reign on the earth, or as the Old Testament prophets put it, that God's righteousness would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what, that's what God's people want, but it's not happening. So that's the problem here. And there's a double problem. Not only is the scroll sealed up, but no one can go to God and get that scroll. No one can open it. No one is worthy to walk up to the throne, take that thing out of God's hand, break the seals, and and implement God's righteous rules in the earth to where evil people are punished and and, and, uh, vulnerable people are protected and grace reigns on the earth and you don't have to worry and fear about brokenness and death and all of that good stuff that comes when you open the scroll. Nobody's found who can do that. Nobody can serve as the conduit. It causes God's perfect and holy will to shape life as we experience it on the earth. So bottom line, 
I think if we're working with the imagery that's being presented here, the message is pretty clear. What's wrong with the world? The Bible's answer. What's wrong with the world is that God's righteousness is not currently in control. God is still king. He's on his throne. But his will is not shaping everything that happens on the earth right now. Question, can you relate to that? Do you ever feel that God's perfect and righteous and holy will is not in control? Man, who doesn't? Do you ever feel that the world is chaotic? That it's broken? That it's headed in the wrong direction? If you do, you're not alone. The Associated Press commissioned a poll just a couple months ago in the summer in July that indicated a whopping 80% of Americans think that the country is headed in the wrong direction. 80%. You get a couple hundred million people together and it's amazing that 80% of them agree on anything. <laughs> like th- this, this transcends just like those who lean left politically and those who lean right politically because it's more than either of those groups. This transcends just like men or women or rich people or poor people or white people or colored people or older people or younger people. It's not just like certain groups are super happy and certain groups aren't. It's like overall, the overwhelming majority of us apparently are really pretty pessimistic about our present and our future. Oh, I'm sure we disagree sometimes strongly about what's wrong with the world and what the right direction is. Of course we disagree about that, but man, one thing you can apparently get almost everybody to agree on, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Friends, what makes you feel most that way? When and where and why do you feel the world's brokenness most acutely? Is it when you see personal tragedies like cancer or accidents or other illnesses hurting people that that you know and love we've had a lot of that going on in our church just these last couple of months those things weigh on my heart as a pastor and a member of this church brothers and sisters in christ are struggling with real difficulty do you feel the weight of the brokenness when you look out at what you perceive to be the trends of society You know, protests and riots that shouldn't be there or maybe protests and riots that should be there but you fear they're not having a positive impact? Would you look out and see the anguish of people of color? The anguish of many law enforcement officers these days? The anguish of business owners whose businesses, especially if they're in downtown Portland, are sometimes caught in the middle of all this chaos? Is that where you sense the brokenness of the world most? Maybe it's, maybe it's just heavy hardship in your own life or loved one's lives. Like what, what makes you moan in longing for the world to be right? Because man, if there are times where you're just like, I can't take this anymore, I want the world to be fixed, you are not alone. And by the way, you're not just in good company with other people who are alive today. You're in good company with Christians who have lived on this world for centuries. In fact, you're in good company with the Apostle John. Look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 5. Having described the problem, no one's worthy to open the scroll. 
John's response, he, he inserts himself into the narrative now, and, and perhaps it's a little bit surprising. He says in verse 4, I began to weep loudly. It's an emphatic, it's a repetition. It literally read in the original language, I began to weep and weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now, if you don't understand what's going on here, you're like, dude, get over it. It's a piece of paper, right? <laughs> really? I mean, that seems kind of dramatic. Is John just being like childish here? Is this over-dramatization? No, no, no. Not at all. What he's feeling is the brokenness of the world. He knows we've got no hope until or unless God, the only one who's perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving and merciful, until and unless he is in control, man, things are going to be messed up. And I'm looking at his control and it's there sealed up and it's totally cut off. And he is feeling the weight of this is not going to change anytime soon. What are we going to do? As fantastical as the imagery of this chapter is, it is describing very literal and very real things, and we're all experiencing them too, to one degree or another. The world's brokenness is not a theological, abstract principle. It's not just an idea. It's pain. It's suffering. It's heartache. It's death. And John weeps loudly when he sees the sparkling promise of peace and justice and a life right there in front of him, but it's sealed up and it's inaccessible. All because of mankind's sin. Who can open this scroll? Nobody. There's no big, tough, strong angel that can just go get it. John knows he certainly can't get it. No army can go seize it from God. We desperately need a strong man. So what's wrong with the world? God's will is sealed up. How's it going to be fixed? Unfortunately, that's where this text goes next. It shows us not only what's wrong with the world, it shows us how it can be fixed. And lastly, it shows us the impact on God's people. How it can be fixed is that we need a hero. We need a hero. We need a savior. And fortunately, we have one. Verses 5 through 7. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, look. <laughs> Here's the answer. Look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Just real quickly there, that, that language, as the book of Revelation so often does, is taking us straight back to the Old Testament. Whenever we read the book of Revelation, the first direction we should look historically is back, not forward, back, because it's always anchoring itself in Old Testament promises. Uh, by referring to the, the, the hero, the Savior, as the Lion of Judah, that's a reference to Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob, or Israel, the father of the Israelite people, blessed his 12 sons, one of whom's name was Judah, and he said, from you will come a lion who will rule. My, uh, the Savior will be a descendant of my son, Judah. And then later he's called the root of Jesse. It's a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 11. Let me just read for a moment the first few verses of Isaiah 11 without commentary. 
This is the, the promise, uh, 600 years before the time of Jesus, the promise that God's Savior would come from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. The kingdom of King David has now been cut down. It's like a tree without a stump. That's the imagery. Okay, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Bible's talking about a person here, a Savior who will come. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Do you hear the language of that sealed up scroll here? That's what we're longing for. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den, a deeply poisonous snake. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise of God reigning. Everything that hurts us, everything that kills us, everything that is dangerous and wrong and broken in the world is finally gone. That's what the hero brings. Now we're back to Revelation 5. This angel tells John, Turn around and look. The Lion of Judah. The Root of Jesse. You remember your Old Testament, John? You remember Genesis 49? You remember Isaiah 11? He's here. And he's conquered. And so John turns to look at who this great Savior is going to be. He's looking for a lion. Interestingly, notice what he sees when he turns around. Verse 6. Between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. He was told to look for a lion. He turns, and it turns out that the lion is actually a lamb. In fact, not just any old lamb, but a sacrificial lamb. He, he's standing there as though he had been slain. He sees a lamb with its throat cut open and the blood gushing out, although the lamb is standing there alive. It, 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 had, it had been killed, but it's there alive. And that lamb is the lion, is the root, is the conqueror, the sacrificial one, is the king. It's a mixing of imagery. It's on purpose. What's going on here? What's going on here is that the conquering lion is the conquered sacrificial lamb of God. Jesus, who is the lion of Judah, the root of David, and the sacrificial lamb that's being referred to here, Jesus conquered our sin and conquered death and conquered all the world's brokenness by being himself broken on the cross. He died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and reunite sinful people like us to God as our Father. And he did this not only to redeem us as people, but also to redeem the entire universe. Just as the earth itself, the Bible tells us, was cursed 
or as the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 8, it was subjected to futility when mankind sinned. So Jesus' death and resurrection fixes not only our sin, but it also mends every brokenness in the world that stems from our sin. Or let's put this in the language of Revelation 5. Jesus' death and resurrection gives him and him alone the ability to go grab that scroll out of the Father's hand, slice the seals, and start to bring about the righteous reign of God on the earth that we so long for. He and he alone is the one who can uncork the bottle of God's righteousness and pour it over the earth to open God's scroll. Friends, if you have never repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, I plead with you to ask God to pray that he would show you the truth and the beauty of the gospel and to come and to give your life to him, trust your future to him because it is only in Christ that you and I have hope. That's the Bible's unrelenting, constant, and steadfast message to all of us. God loves us enough to give us the opportunity to receive life, great cost to him, only the cost of our pride and repentance to us. If you have questions about what it means to begin a relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you to fill out one of those connection cards. Or if you're here on campus, grab myself, Pastor Jordan, or one of our elders. We're here. We'd love to talk with you. If you're watching on our live stream, you can click that communication card link and just say, hey, I want to find out about becoming a Christian. Here's my phone number. We'd love to talk with you about that. Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but he's, only the, he's the world's only Savior as well. Now, there's something else important that this means. It means that there is, according to the Bible, only one strong man who can deliver us from a hopeless set of circumstances. The trouble is, he has many competitors. They're ultimately false, according to the Bible. They'll ultimately let us down if we trust in them, but, but they're still there, and they vie for our attention. As human beings, we inherently know that we need a Savior. We know that, that no one of us can fix everything ourselves, that we need someone who has that rare ability to exert tremendous influence to change things for the better and to do so on our behalf. We know we need that. That's one of the reasons superhero stories are so popular right? The thought of good-hearted people who agree with us about what's right and have the power, more power than most of us have, to do something about it, stepping in and punishing the wicked and saving the righteous and protecting the vulnerable is so deeply compelling because we know it's exactly what we need. But it's one thing to talk about the popularity of superhero movies. It's another thing to talk about the rise of dictators to power. And they almost always rise to power on the wings of a promise to fix the world. If you would just give me power, I will give you a better future. Friends are very conscious. We're preaching this sermon just a couple weeks before a national election. A time in which every four years, well, all candidates, but let's just talk about the two major party candidates, Whomever they are, it changes from election to election, but they will always present themselves to us as the strong man or woman who will seize the levers of power and will use them the way you and I would want them used, or at least a lot more the way we would want them used than the other person. 
who will shape the world in a more positive direction. And the appeal is not just vote for me. The appeal is hope in me. And to a group of people who are feeling the weight of the world's brokenness and who are very discouraged about the future, that message has a powerful sell. Followers of Jesus, this morning, can I speak especially to us? Vote. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's part of our privilege and responsibility, I believe, even scripturally. Yet, don't believe or hope in the strong man promises. Not for a second. And how do you know if you're believing or hoping in them? The answer is, check your, check your heart. Check your emotions. That'll, that'll tell you. That's like the, the thermometer that tells you what's, what's really going on. How much anxiety do you feel? How much hope do you feel? Let me, let me maybe put it this way. If you have a, a favorite in this coming election... Uh, just how distraught will you be should your guy lose? Just how elated will you be should your guy win? Now, it's natural to think if one candidate is preferable to, preferable to the other and they win, that you feel good about that, and if they lose, that you're discouraged. Obviously, some of that's natural. But, but, but how far does that go? How far does that go? I tell you, I'm standing here on, what is this, October 25th? I got no idea who the next president of the United States is going to be. No clue. And whichever way it goes, I will experience some mix of hopefulness and disappointment that will look different, <laughs> a different mix depending on who wins. But I can tell you today, there's one thing I absolutely know for sure. I will sleep soundly on November 3rd and November 4th. Regardless, I will personally be just fine. Can I say that as a Christian? That I'll really be just fine. If I can, it may indicate that my real hope is anchored in history's true strongman, not, not a political one. If I can't, maybe I've got too much of my hope resting on the outcome of a politician. And we're just talking about elections. This is not limited to politics. Is your hope resting in the strong men who work in vaccine labs to finally come up with a vaccine that's going to make the coronavirus go away and restore to us life the way it was meant to be again? It's a good thing to fund research for. It's a good thing to hope for. It's a good thing to pray for. Are we basing our hope on it? Our emotions will tell us. Friends, there's only one strong man who can fix what's broken with the world. He's not appearing on anyone's ballot. He doesn't work in anyone's lab. Let us not put our hope in a better future, the hope for a better future in a president or a vaccine. Revelation 5 tells us the one person who can deliver on the promise of hope. And that affects who we are, which is where this, this chapter ends. That affects who we are. There's not only what's wrong with the world and how it can be fixed, but now there's the call to anchor our personal experience in Christ's worthiness and victory. Starting at verse 8 and going to the end of the chapter in verse 14, we see three sort of concentric circles of reverberating praise. 
Uh, First of all, there's those angelic beings closest to the throne sing this song that's uh, listed out for us in verses 9 and 10 there about the, the worthiness of Jesus. They're excited about it. They're praising him for it and giving him honor and glory. And then in verse 11... John looks and and the song starts to spread. Now every angelic being in heaven, millions upon millions, you can't even count them. They join into another song. Again, worthy is the lamb who was slain, praising Jesus for his victory and his ability to be the savior. And then lastly, every living being in heaven and on earth in this vision, the fish in the sea and all the people in the world and all the little worms that crawl under the earth and like just everything. Everything in creation joins the angelic host and everything is giving praise to Jesus. Half the chapter is devoted to this increasingly uh, spreading, reverberating praise. It's like when your team wins the championship and you just can't contain your happiness. You've got to wear that jersey to church the next Sunday because you're so excited, right? That's what they're experiencing. These people are fired up. These angels are fired up. They are excited. They are cheering. And their joy is rooted in Christ's worthiness and victory. Or to put that differently, Jesus' worth shaped their personal experience. Jesus' worth shaped their personal experience. It wasn't just something they saw. It wasn't just something they believed in. It was something that actually shaped their current experience. And this was John's experience too. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, remember, John's weeping loudly. He's broken. He's devastated in grief. And this angel comes along and says, weep no more because of what I'm about to show you. The worthy Jesus. He doesn't just say, learn the fact that Jesus is worthy. He doesn't doesn't just expect that John will learn that, believe it. He expects that it will shape his current experience. It will affect his emotions and his outlook on human history and the world around him. When you see this, John, stop weeping and join in the reverberating chorus of praise. Be happy, be overjoyed. The right team just won. Friends, do you want joy in place of discouragement? Do you want hope in place of fear and anxiety? The Bible is abundantly clear. There is one place to get it the worth and the victory of Christ. Okay, if that's true, let's be real. If that's really true, then why are so many professing Christians, people who believe in the worth and the victory of Christ, who believe that his death and resurrection conquer sin and death, why are so many professing Christians characterized more by anger, fear, discouragement, and hopelessness right now than reverberating joy? Does that prove that this is wrong? I don't think so. I think it proves that it's possible to believe that Christ is worthy and has won, but to not have that actually shape our experience. 
We believe these things, but, but they seem remote. They, they don't define what I'm seeing and feeling right now, and my emotions oftentimes are showing it. Friends, that's why we've been talking for the last few weeks so much about pursuing God as members of Harvest Community Church through what the Bible calls meditating on Scripture. Meditating on it. That means not just reading it or studying the Bible. Those are important things too, but that's not what we're talking about here. Meditating on Scripture is so essential for American churches like ours right now because we need to do more than just learn truths about Christ and believe them. We also need to regularly immerse ourselves in them until they shape our experience more than our circumstances do. And that's hard work. That's hard work. Thankfully, God has provided a number of resources to help us do this. Let's kind of turn the corner here. Let me just mention a couple. Uh, First of all, we've already mentioned this, meditating on Scripture. We've been talking about that for weeks. Uh, Using music or Scripture memory or writing things down and journaling, all these different tools we've been talking about of ways to get myself to engage with the truth of Scripture until it actually starts to affect how I'm feeling right now. Here's some examples of great things to meditate on if you're looking for some uh, pointers. I would start with passages like these. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The mind-blowing magnificence of your salvation that God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. You wake up every day and get that into your heart, it will change the course of your day. That one is worth meditating on. Another one. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. The supremacy and preeminence of Christ to just soak in that and meditate on it until I see his bigness more than I see all of the things I'm afraid of or I don't have control over so that when I look at those things again, I've got the supremacy of Christ in the background. Meditate on it until it starts to shape my experience. Just one other of many good passages of Scripture that we as American Christians right now I think would do good to meditate on. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. The staggering and unspeakable, and, and, and beautifully and poetically written, by the way, love of God for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm convinced that neither depth nor height, nor angels nor principalities, nor power, nor things to come, the list just goes on and on and on. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you meditate on that over and over again, sing it till your soul starts to respond you can join that song of praise. Meditate on scripture. Second, can I encourage us to sing? That's part of meditating on scripture. It's one of the great ways to do it, but this is something I think is worth talking about on its own. Both alone, by ourselves, and together with other Christians, we need to sing. Did you realize that singing is the one art form in scripture that is commanded of every church? doesn't mean it's better than or other art forms are lesser than. It's just interesting that nowhere our church is commanded to sculpt, to paint, or necessarily to dance, but in the New Testament, churches are regularly commanded to sing. Colossians chapter 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell among you, plural, church, richly. How do we do that? 
with thankfulness, uh, sorry, teaching and admonishing one another and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You realize God wants you to gather with other Christians and sing? Your soul needs it. My soul needs it because when we sing the truths of God, it connects with us in a way that includes our mind but is not limited to our mind. It engages us in a whole person way so that the truths penetrate down to us. Can I tell you honestly, for a moment as a pastor, one of the biggest concerns that I have, struggles that I have in this coronavirus pandemic when the whole church is not able to gather, I'm so grateful some of us are gathering now, One of my great concerns is that many of us have not sung together with other Christians in probably eight or nine months. I'm worried. If that's you, I'm worried about the impact of that on your soul. I know it can feel awkward to sit in your own living room and feel like I can't carry a tune and I'm watching this live stream. It feels like I'm watching church more than participating in it. I know, I get it. Can I encourage you? Sing. Sing, put your favorite tunes on your iPod or your phone or whatever you've got. And even when you're alone in the car or go ahead and do that crazy shower thing, sing the truths of Scripture. Some of us would benefit from turning down or off some of the social media, the television news shows and the political talk radio that just dominate and fill our heads with things to be upset and angry and fearful about and turn on to good Bible-saturated and gospel-centered music like the stuff that we sing here or many, many other forms of music if that's not your favorite. Speaking of which, one last thing. Not only personal meditation on Scripture and the need to sing, but we need to gather. We need to gather. What a stupid thing to say at a time like this. I know. I know. Hear me out. Hear me out. Even at a time when public health has dictated that maybe we don't gather the same way for a while, we still need to be together. I understand as a church we all have different comfort levels and caution levels with respect to the coronavirus. Some of us probably think the whole thing is a hoax. Some of us probably think we're going to drop dead if we walk out our front door. Most of us are probably somewhere in between, right? We all have different levels of concern with it. We all have different people we're exposed to and reason to be either more or less careful. We understand all of that. My purpose in bringing this up is not to guilt or pressure anybody into doing something against their conscience. That's not at all the point. So please don't hear me say that. Now, having said that, members of Harvest Community Church, can I ask you to consider the impact on your spiritual life and on your family, if you have other people in your household, What is the impact of not gathering with other believers for scriptural-based community for months and months and months on end? And can we weigh that in our calculations, in, in our risk of catching the coronavirus? Maybe it's time for some of you who have not come here on a Sunday morning to jump on our website tomorrow and reserve a seat to be here physically with brothers and sisters in Christ next Sunday. Perhaps it's time for some of our small groups that maybe uh, haven't been meeting and were Zoom meeting for a while and then maybe you sort of fell off with that because that just gets hard to get back at it, either meeting in person or if not, then meeting uh, over Zoom calls. Maybe it's time to invite a friend over if you're comfortable with this, to have just one or two people in your home and watch the service together on the live stream so that it's more of a communal experience. That's why we put so much effort and energy into opening our building back up 
even though we're limited to having 100 people on campus with our current guidelines right now, we feel like it's worth it to create as much opportunity to gather as possible. Why? It's very simple. Because a coal in a barbecue just burns out when it's off on by itself. God has given us one another to stay in touch. Thank God we have technology that can help us stay in touch even when we can't be together. It's harder. It's less satisfying. It's worth it. Friends, if you can get out to shop or work or attend in person, then at least gather with friends or with a small group. If you really shouldn't for health reasons, then lean harder than ever on Zoom calls and phone calls. If you know somebody in the church who's drifted and you haven't seen them for a while, pick up the phone, give them a call. Let's connect with one another. Why? Because Christ is one. I don't know about you, but I need that to shape my experience every day because there's plenty of reasons to be discouraged and frustrated if I focus on what's going on here. But if I focus on who he is and what he has done, then I not only believe Christ is one, but I anchor my experience in the fact that Christ is one. And friends, then you get happy, joyful people no matter what's going on. And then you get the gospel shining brightly. And we will see friends and neighbors come to Christ in droves because he's doing the work of drawing people to himself. Let's be a part of that. I want to ask the music team to come back up here. And I want to pray for us as we sing. Jesus, we're going to sing songs to you now that exalt you, praise you for who you are. I pray that you would receive that praise and be joy, overjoyed by it. I pray that the act of giving that praise would change us. Help us as people to ground our experience in your victory in new and fresh ways this morning because we have seen you and because we love you and because you're worth it. What a joy to stand with brothers and sisters in Christ and announce yes. That's what we believe. So we pray that you would receive the praise of a grateful people right now. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us, please? And I'm going to ask a good friend of mine and brother who's named Albert. He's been part of our church for a little while, and he's going to be leading us in these last three songs. So, Albert, lead us in, please.